Well, Shalom, I want to welcome everyone to a new segment of podcasting where I just kind of share some drops, I guess will be the best way to put this. So this past Shabbat was Shabbat Zakor, and I gave a very, very uh, crunch time uh, opener to the service to kind of help with understanding, you know, the time that we were given for Shabbat. Why Shabbat? Why is it Shabbat Zakor? And why is it all about remembering to blot out a Melech? So first, I would like to go ahead and read the actual Ivrit of this Parsha. And so, since we're actually going to be reading a segment of Torah, literally the verses, I'm going to go ahead and say the opening bracha for reading from the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bachar banu mikol hamim, venatan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai, noten ha-torah. Zakur et asher asa lecha, amelech baderek bezetkem mimitzrayim. Asher kara, or asher karka, ba derek, vai zenev becha kol han nechashalim achareka ve ata ayef ve yagea velo yare elohim. Vehaya be haniak Adonai Eloheka Leka mikol oiveka mi saviv ba aritz Asher Adonai Eloheka noten leka Nakala le rishta tim he et zeker amelek mi tachat hashemaim lo Beivrit, or Be English, Anglit, Be Anglit. Got my Spanish and Hebrew and Spebrew mixed up. Okay. This is Devarim 17, or Devarim 25, 17 through 19. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way when you were leaving Mitzrayim, who happened up on you. <clears throat> On the way, and he struck away you all your weaklings, or all the weaklings at your rear, when you were faint and exhausted, and he did not fear God. It will be that when Adonai your God gives you rest from all your enemies all around in the land that Adonai your God gives you as a heritage to take possession of it. You shall wipe away, you shall wipe out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. You shall not forget. And the blessing after reading from the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet Vekaye olam natabetokeinu Baruch atah Adonai Amen. So, 
With that being said, I want to go ahead and just kind of jump in where I picked up uh, from what is the deal with this memory of Amalek, because it's important to know where Amalek came from. So, with Amalek, we know that the gematria of Amalek is the same as the gematria of doubt, which is Safek, Samek, Fe, Kuf. So, Amalek and Safek have literally the same gematria, which means that they're numerically equivalent. They have relevance to one another. So if we're thinking Amalek, we're thinking doubt. If we're thinking doubt, we're thinking Amalek. Well, one of the beautiful things about this is that when you look at the root of Amalek, it is the word Amal, which means labor and toil. As used in Tehillim 127.1, where it says, unless Adonai builds the house, the builders Amal in vain. They labor in vain. So when you already see this picture of Amalek, you're thinking divorce from Hashem and now try to do everything. This is the same reason why Shaul wrote all of his letters. Well, he probably wrote way more than this, but the bulk of his letters that's used by Christianity today to tell people not to follow the Torah is under the auspices of Amalek because it means divorce yourself from Hashem, have no faith in Hashem, have no recollection of his wondrous deeds and salvations. Yes, multiple, because Hashem is always saving his people. That's why understanding that, you know, being always saved, once saved, always saved, that's not a valid theology. Because Hashem did not ever do that to us. He did not once save us and always save us. He always saves us. That's very important to know. This is why we say that he's the master of salvations and the master of consolations. Literally, that's in the Birkat Hamazon, the blessing that we recite after eating a meal that uh, consists of bread. Deuteronomy chapter 8 gets into that. But Amalek was all about taking away the fruit. So I want you to labor, but I don't want you to have any fruit. I want you to be a branch, but I don't want you to be connected to the vine. Because you can totally do that. And again, if you think about the majority of how the Bible is taught today, it's taught from branches who are severed from the vine. Because as Judaism brings down, the vine is Yisrael. It literally comes from the Torah portion via, via Ki, where Yaakov is blessing Yehuda and doing all this stuff about the grapevine and the fold of his donkey and all that kind of stuff. All Mashiach drops, like writing your grill right there. But I digress. But I want to say that this is the root of Amalek. He wants you to labor in vain. And literally, as we read in the passage of Parashah Zakor, which is what it's called, Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, this is what Baal Hatorim brings down. 
and he struck among you. It says the gematria of this phrase is 97, which is equal to that of Ze Mila. This refers to the circumcision. Basically, as disturbing as this is going to be, this is the reality of it. One of the things among many that Amalek did to <clears throat> to us when he attacked us, some of the the people who are outside the cloud, some of the people who are at the rear of the camp, and some of the people who were uh, unfortunate individuals who happened to come into contact with Amalek, uh, they were castrated. So literally, they took the circumcision away from these individuals and they also spurned Hashem with it. So they said, oh, this is what you want, Hashem? And they throw it. They threw it in Hashem's face. And he's like, here's your circumcision. So that's very disturbing. But if you'll stick with me, this is the theology that's taught. This is the theology that tells people do not get circumcised, do not keep the Shabbat, do not convert, don't worry about a mercy in a mikvah, just go to a baptism, you know, uh, don't do any of that Jewish stuff. This is the spirit and the fruit, which is weird because Amalek is not about fruit, well, he's about rotten fruit, and this is what's going on. So it's like, don't be fruitful. And I made the point in the statement that Amalek wants no perpetuation of Judaism, of Jews. Literally, the story goes all the way back to Yaakov and his brother Esau. Esau, commonly known as Esau, Yaakov, commonly known as Jacob. So Esau was the firstborn, but he sold it to Yaakov. Him forgetting that he sold it to Yaakov now is a bunch of Lashon Hurrah because he says Yaakov is a thief. Now I'm just going to put this out there. How is Yaakov going to be a thief when he outright bought the birthright, which was connected to the blessing that Yitzhak wanted to give to his son before he died. He said, my son, talking to Asaph, go out and prepare me fresh game so that I may eat and I may bless you. And then, you know, you'll have all of this. Well, uh, Rivka was nearby and she heard this and she was like, <laughs> no, I think not. I think Asaph does not deserve that blessing. Number one, he's not the firstborn anymore because he sold it. Because remember that time? Asav went out one day and was hunting and was like, wow, I'm going to do all this stuff. He uh, he married. He uh, had relations with a betrothed woman. He uh, he committed like all these different crimes. One of them was stealing. Another one was killing. Like basically all the sins that caused the destruction of both temples. He did in one day. Selah. He did all this as the firstborn and with the garments that Hashem made for Adam and Hava. Okay, he was wearing that, that garment because during his whole shenanigan that day, he killed King Nimrod and took the garments from him. So he acquired the garments after doing all these heinous acts 
that causes the destruction of the temple. He comes home, gives the clothes to his Ema, who is Rivka, and he goes in and sits down and is like, oh my gosh, I'm so famished. It's like, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm exhausted. He was hangry, basically. And who was he sitting down in front of? He came and sat down in front of Yaakov, who was cooking lentil soup. Red lentil soup, to be exact, because this was a Shiva meal, a morning meal for a meal of mourning for those who mourn, because Abraham had just passed away. So Abraham had passed away and Yaakov was like, I'm going to make this meal for my, in the memory of my grandfather. And, you know, we're sitting Shiva this week. So obviously my father just lost his father. So we're going to um, take care of this with a meal of comfort. Asaph not caring a thing in the world about all that is like, I'm hungry. What is that? He's like lentil soup. He's like, all oh, that red stuff, just pour it down my throat. And Yaakov's like, hold up. I will give you this soup if you give me the birthright. And Asav literally says, what good is this birthright to me? Whatever. Asav gets rid of the birthright. He's like, fine, just give me the soup. Now, how many of you know that's what's called a knee-jerk reaction? What's called an immediate gratification reaction? What's a speaking before you think? A doing before you think action. Not save a nishma very much because, I mean, that's what happened. It was more of like, not say, no nishma, because he didn't even contemplate the ramifications of him selling the birthright for a pot of soup. It's like, so you're going to give up all of your responsibility, all of your obligations, just so you can have a meal. That's what's going on in the world today. People give up all their responsibility for the sake of bacon. Did you know that pork bacon is not the only bacon that exists in the world? People literally give up salvation, covenant with Hashem, for a meal. Double cheeseburgers, triple cheeseburgers, bacon cheeseburgers, uh, steak and shrimp, you know, lobster rolls. Like people want that so much and they're like, whatever with the birthright. Hence why Asaph is all about Yeshua. I, I actually not even sure because they don't recognize him as that. They don't even want to call him that. So JC made all foods clean. So this is another reason why calling Yeshua by the name of JC is a problem because you're feeding the theology of Esau that tells people give up the birthright for the sake of a meal. So with that being said, um, the other key statement that Esau says is I'm going to die anyway, which is a very, um, what do they call those people? Sadducee type of way of thinking. Sadducee. It's sad, you see, because Sadducees do not believe in the life hereafter. Commonly known as the afterlife or the Alam Haba. None of that doesn't take that even into account. 
So I want to go ahead and source this out for you because this was the Shomerman Midrash of this wonderful, well, kind of not wonderful, disturbing account from Bereshit. Uh, it's in Parsha Toldot. Yep. Chapter 25 of Bereshit. The phrase that I just mentioned, Bereshit 2532, look, I am about to die, Asaph said. What good is this birth, is the birthright to me? So if you read chapter 25, you'll get all of that. And if you study from the Humash, maybe get into uh, Rashi and Bahaturim and get into some of the Midrash says, you can get the whole scoop. Midrash Abai, you'll get everything. So in that section of Parsha Toldot. But anyway, so this is all going on, right? So Asav basically becomes disenfranchised because what ends up happening later is that when it came time for the blessing, which was supposed to be for the firstborn, which is not really ever commonly mentioned because it's always like, oh, Rivka took over and she dressed up Yaakov and she traded him out for Asav. And so that wasn't good enough. You know, that was so wrong. That was bad. And, you know, that's not cool. But the only reason Yitzhak was going to bless his air quote son, because he was supposed to bless the firstborn, because that's who the blessing goes to. And if you think about Israel being the firstborn, why is Israel the blessed nation out of all the other nations? Because we're the firstborn. Think about it. Most people don't want to be Israel because why? Because if you're the firstborn, you get blessings, but you also have quite a bit of responsibilities, which is why the Torah of Hashem is like, that's, you know, that unifies Israel with Hashem. So Anyway, I could get way off into that, but that's far enough for now. So the blessing goes to the firstborn. Rivka's like, well, let's give the blessing to the firstborn. That is Yaakov. And if that's not good enough, there is a source that says that Hashem did sign off on Israel being the firstborn, i.e. Yaakov being the firstborn, because Yaakov's name was changed to Israel eventually after he wrestles with the angel who is called the face of God, who some commentaries say that this was the guardian angel of Asaph, i.e. the Samic Mem, which is like the evil incarnation, the angel of death. So it's kind of like, wait, death and life? Wait, what are we doing here? So that's a whole nother drop. You can talk to Akav, who is our Avenger on that. But anyway, so this is a point that Yaakov overcame the spiritual principality of Asav. So now in the in the spiritual and in the physical, Yaakov has overcome Asav. So Asav is like straw man left to nothing. Oh, that's interesting cuz Obadiah says that Asav is a house of straw. Hence why they have straw man arguments about everything. Asav, progenitor of Edom, progenitor of Rome. So Christianity, all of that, because that's where Christianity came from, came from Rome. 
So Asaph is connected to Cain, uh, who is Cain, who is connected to the serpent who tricked us in the garden into eating of the fruit, which all takes us back to the Samic Mem, the evil inclination and the principality of that whole strain. But Yaakov overcame all of that and became Yisrael. So Yisrael literally is one who wrestles with Hashem, which is overcoming man and like spirituality. So the physical and the spiritual, we we were granted dom domination, dominion, and victory over. It. And that's through our forefather, Yaakov. So, all of this being said, Yaakov gets the blessing of the firstborn through the little switcheroo. And Esau finds out about it and is just livid. He's crushed. He's like all the worst feelings that you could ever experience all at one time. And just like, okay, so run the gamut. He's disappointed because he's late. He can't believe the father gave the blessing away. He's like, you knew you should have known that wasn't me. Took me forever to get this stuff because Hashem sent angels to release all the animals that he caught. So by the time he would catch an animal, he would get to it and it would be because he was trapping all the animals to get them, you know, so they would get released. And by the time he would get to it, he's like, ah, I just trapped it and now it's gone. Then he'd do that a couple more times. He's like, you know what? Fine. I'm just going to go kill a dog and I'm just going to offer that. So he was literally going to offer his dad a dog as a meal. And it's just like, Psh. How are you going to bless somebody after eating a dog? But anyway, that again, this is all in the Jewish stuff that comments on this section of the parasha. Toldot. This is all the precursor to why Yaakov had to leave. Rivka was like, you know what, my son, you have to go because if Esau sees you, he will kill you. You know, so I don't want you to die. I don't want him to die. Both of my sons dying in one day. I can't do it. I can't have this happen. So you go, by, by, matter of fact, while you're out, go find a wife, go build a family, go do holy stuff. Okay. I'll call for you when things settle down a little bit. So he's leaving. Asaph's like, ah, oh, no, 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 no. I say no. I say nay, nay. Not the dance, but. I say he shall not leave. So he goes and he tells his son, Eliphaz, who is the son of a woman named Timna, who wanted to come and join the household of Abraham and Yitzhak, but she was rejected for whatever reason. I mean, there's a whole Talmud drop about it. I could get into it, but I don't have time. Bezrat Hashem, I'm doing a lot of podcasts today, so we'll drop a team to drop. So <clears throat> anyway, she's uh, she's like, I want to be a part of Abraham's household. And if I if I have to do that through Asav, I might as well. Asav is marrying all these strange women. He's marrying Ishmaelites women. He's marrying Moabite women. He's marrying Ammonite women. Like if you're a woman, he coming for you. And it doesn't matter if you're betrothed, he's still going to come for you. So this is just a very deprived thing. And it's like, now you can see the difference between Asav and Yaakov. They both look alike, by the way. One is more hairy than the other. But yeah, they, they still, they both look like they're twins. So this is why Christianity and Judaism 
it's confusing for some people because people who believe in the Messiah and they find out Judaism is the one who came up with the idea of the Messiah and Christianity took it and turned it into something else. But they find all these overlays like Messiah being the image of God, Messiah being the atonement sacrifice and the one who was offered up on the mountain and all that kind of stuff. It's like, wait, so there's not really a difference. It's like, okay, yes, there is. There's a very big difference. One follows Torah and one doesn't. Mainly, uh, if you want to go just with simple on the surface, you know, one came up with the Bible and the other made up the Bible. Like, I mean, really, what is what's really the same about any of that? But, you know, as we continue on, Timna tells her son, son, I'm going to tell you this. It's not a good idea. Here's my source on it. It's actually from Bahatorim on chapter 26, verse one and Devarim, because the first verse of chapter 26 is connected to the parasha of Zakor that we just read in Devarim 25. It says, it will be when you enter the land that Hashem, your God, gives you as an inheritance and you possess it and dwell in it. It says, when you enter, the previous verse states, you shall wipe out the memory of Amalek, Devarim 25, 19, and juxtaposed to it is, it will be when you enter the land. Juxtaposition, by the way, is one of the biggest things you can do in your studies. Uh, with the Parsha of Kitisa, there is talking, there's talks about the atonement money, i.e. the half shekel that has to be donated. And from there it goes right into the shiny labor. And from there it goes right into the, uh, the Ketoret, which are the spices that are put on the golden altar. And it's like, so if you really look at what's juxtaposed to one another, it's like, so wait a minute, because I think just going to double check here real quick that uh, Parsha Tadzave actually ends with the offering of the. I'm going somewhere with this. So I just want to break down juxtaposition, hitting the rabbi trail pretty hard today. So hopefully everyone's kind of used to that. But yeah, it says uh, Aharon shall bring atonement up on its horns once a year. So he kindles the lance in the afternoon. You shall bring uh, as continual incense for your generations. This is uh, Shemot chapter 30. Now in verse nine, you shall not bring up on it alien incense or a burnt offering or a meal offering, nor may you pour a libation on it. And so this is talking about the Ketoret. So the golden altar. So we go from the golden altar to atonement money to shiny labor and back to the spices that you put on the golden altar. So just kind of looking at some juxtaposition things, because after that, we're going to get into the uh, the one called Bezalel, who's going to build the ark and the Mishkan with Aholiav and the rest of the called ones of Israel to make everything. And then we're going to go right from there into the golden calf. Well, we're going to take a Shabbat break and then go into the golden calf. Cause we're going to talk about the Shabbat. They're going to talk about the golden calf. So juxtaposition is going to give a whole lot of insight onto all that because 
You can see how intricately the golden altar and the shiny laver are these bookends to atonement. And what's covering the atonement is this fragrant aroma that all has to do with Esau because the 11 is the number of spices that is put together in the Ketoret. And Esau is basically crushed up because he represents 11. And that provides the fragrant aroma that Hashem smells, by the way, which is the way he judges because he judges by smell. We can all fake the way we look and fake the way we act, but we cannot fake the way we smell. So there's that. But anyway, so if you just kind of look at all that, you can see atonement and forgiveness and redemption and salvation and entering in the Shabbat. And, you know, this is all before understanding that we've fallen short of the glorious standard of God, because that's what the golden calf is the epitome of us falling short of God's glorious standards. But yet there's already been a way of atonement made for us. So anyway, Bahatorium comments on this verse of 26.1 in Devarim. And he says that the reason for this juxtaposition, he says, indicates that they were commanded to wipe out the memory of Amalek immediately upon their entry into the land of Israel. This is why Amalek still exists in our memory and even in our physicality today, because we're not in the land yet. So, begs the question, why are we not in the land? Second question is, why are we not wiping out Amalek completely as we're entering into the land? So, I mean, just things to think about. Because when you think about the reason of Amalek, he doesn't care about what God has commanded. He doesn't care about whether you're in covenant and on what rung of the ladder you're in, so to speak, of that covenant. He just wants you out of it. He doesn't want you to be a branch grafted into the vine. He doesn't want you to be a person who's crossed over from death into life. He doesn't want you to be a person who has left the kingdom of darkness and come into the kingdom of light. He doesn't want any of that. He's fine as long as you do what you want to do and not what Hashem wants you to do. So key thing, make what you want to do is that what Hashem wants you to do. So in other words, my desire shall be what Hashem desires. You know, so let's let us all attain to that. His will should be our will. His kingdom and its righteousness is the first and foremost of our aspirations, our ambitions, and our desires. Amalek does not like that. So anyway, entering into the land, for this reason, the descendants of Amalek wanted to prevent the Israelites' entry into the land. For Amalek is the one who told the king of Egypt, i.e. Pharaoh, that the people had fled from Shemot 14.5. And he is the one who told Lavan that Yaakov fled Shemot 31.22. For this reason, the Torah juxtaposed the passage concerning the first fruits to the passage concerning Amalek, for he, the bringer of the first fruits, states that an Aramean i.e. Laban, the Aramean, tried to destroy my forefather. So now you got Laban and Pharaoh 
are both informed by Amalek about Yaakov and his children leaving. And uh, so it's like, keep them in bondage, keep them in exile. And if they try to leave, tell on them. So Shabbat Zakor, leading up to Shabbat of Pesach, leading up to Pesach, really, the festival of our freedom, Amalek is doing everything in his power to keep us away from it. Now, footnotes on this is where the backstory really just kind of goes ridiculous. Yaakov fled from Levan in Genesis chapter 21 or 31. Amalek was already aware of the decree that his memory be eradicated. Amalek at this point in time already knew from the time Jacob left the house of Laban. He was like, Jacob's getting ready to wipe me out. I need to move. Here we go. Says, but how could Amalek have known about the decree when God made no mention of it until more than two centuries later, after Amalek attacked Israel in Rephidim some weeks after Paro's army had been drowned in the Yom Suf? Dude, this is ridiculous. So how is Amalek going to be the one who attacks us? Well, it's the nation of Amalek, who every king of Amalek is called Amalek. Just like every king of um, of the, what is it, the Philistines or, because uh, uh, we got the Abimeleks. Um, so the king, the king that he's in, the, the king Abimelech, which is the nation he's in charge of, the Philistines. Yes. Okay. So he goes and it's like, okay, so he has a son. So now when he rises to kingship, he's called Abimelech. So same thing with king of uh, the Amalekites. It's always King Amalek. Okay. They're all like named after each other. Just like Egypt has Pharaoh. It's every like Pharaoh's son is called Pharaoh. All right. So anyway, you think about this because you have to connect the dots that for hundreds of years, 430 to be exact, from the time of the covenant between the parts into the birth of Yitzhak, which is when it began, all the way until the exodus from Egypt, we got a 430-year time span and Amalek keeps re-upping his game every generation leading up until the point where he can go attack them to keep them from going into the promised land. Do you know how much hatred and evil that takes to perpetuate such evil to wipe out people? Like, just think about that. That's just absolutely, like, insidious. So anyway, the Bahatorium source for this comment is not known. So Bahatorium gets to drop sources without naming those sources. So sources, hatred, justice once, hopefully. <laughs> but anyway, just, just as a point that you, we want to try to source out as much as we can, but it's like, uh, well, Bahatorim didn't have a source for this. So anyway, going on to the next statement, it says a parallel comment in Hadar Zekanim and Perush Harokiak gives a different rationale for Amalek revealing to Paro 
that the Israelites had fled. Those sources cite an unnamed Midrash. Goodness gracious, these unnamed Midrashes and unnamed sources. Asaph adjured his son Eliphaz to murder Yaakov. Eliphaz first consulted with his mother, Timnah, who cautioned him against killing Yaakov. She said, don't do it. She said, my son, Yaakov is stronger than you and he will kill you. Moreover, if your father is not afraid that Yaakov would kill him in battle, he would certainly prefer to kill Yaakov with his own hands. So in other words, your father's scared too. That's why he's sending you. That's the other thing with Amalek. He don't care. Amalek and Asaph are related. Amalek is the grandson of Asaph. So now we have this whole understanding that Amalek is intrinsically within Asaph, which is so like, wait a minute, because if Christianity was born of Asaph and it was, that means Christianity is the epitome of Amalek. This is why there's so much confusion in the entire world today, because there is a Messiah of Israel who came to die for the sins of all mankind, was buried and resurrected on the third day. And people are like, yep, that's Christian. And it's like, no, it's not. That's called an Akedah, which is just a perpetuation of what happened in Genesis 22. If you don't believe it, Rabbi... Griffin, the Lapeter Rebbe, a.k.a. Captain Yisrael, on Shabbat Zakor, did probably the most epic drop that you could ever think about hearing on that subject. So as soon as that is ready, that will be posted everywhere. And so please check that out. It will be the Journey Through Genesis series, and it is on Genesis 22. So when that video comes out, Put it out wherever you can. Post it on all the social medias. Text it to all your friends because it literally just it's ridiculous. But anyway. So Amalek and Christianity. There you go. This is why people think you're losing your salvation when you begin to follow the word of God and become fruitful and eternal life and stuff. Because they realize what they have is not eternal life. That's right. Christianity realizes that it does not have eternal life. Because when people leave Christianity for the sake of eternal life, which is found through the Torah, which is Mashiach, they get super scared. They make you doubt. They pull you back. They keep you from entering into the promises of God. They say, don't you remember what Paul said? Don't you remember that we don't do any of this stuff, which they have no sources for, by the way. So anyway, the more you know, it says that uh, Eliphaz was now torn between fulfilling his oath to his father and fear of Yaakov. What did he do? He went to Yaakov and Yaakov ceded all his possessions to Eliphaz except for his staff 
you can see Genesis 32:11. Now, this is where I take the sidestep of when you look at the gematria of Amal versus another word called Amain, which is what is in Genesis 15:6, where it says that Abraham believed, which is Amain. So Abraham Amain Adonai and Adonai reckoned it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. So your righteousness comes from your Amen, which is the root of Emuna, which is the root of faith. So faith all has to do with the action of what you believe, not just the mentality of what you believe, but the action, the fullness of manifestation for the Kabbalists out there, the Malkut of your Chokmah is amen you want to bring your wisdom knowledge and understanding down into this world it looks like amen or it looks like avraham why is this such an important thing because avraham left his family for the sake of hashem he gave up his place he gave up his belongings he only took with him his household and the souls that he and his wife had made. Literally, it says that in Genesis. And you think about all that. Abraham didn't know where he was going. All he was doing was listening to the voice of God, following the voice of God, obeying his word, and denying his own self that he can follow after Hashem. This sounds strangely familiar and similar to Mashiach, Yeshua, who tells us to do the same things to follow him because he is the voice of Hashem. The voice of Hashem walked in the garden with Adam. So how come it can't walk with us and lead us back to the garden? That's why the Torah is the pathway to the tree of life. But anyway, I digress. So when you put Amen next to Amal, you have these two words that the difference between the two in the gematria system is 49. Amal is 140 in gematria. Amain is 91 in gematria. 140 minus 91 equals 49. 49 is the numerical value of mem tet, which makes the word for staff. Also, the abbreviation of the angel of Hashem, who's called Memtet, which is connected to what's called the 49 levels of impurity or purity. So basically what it is, is Yaakov said to Eliphaz, I'll take the 49 and you can take all this other stuff. That's all I need. All I need is the 49, the Memtet. Just like Moshe, all he needed was that staff. And Hashem was like, oh, that's what you got? You got the staff? So Zohar brings down that staff is Mashiach, son of God, branch from the tree of life. And basically, this is the same staff that Yaakov carried. That's brought down in, uh, Shonaf Pincus actually brought down the secession of the staff, like who handed it to who and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he brought that down in Parsha Taruma a couple of years ago. So anyway, uh, here it is. The 49 gates. 
This is from the Jewish Wisdom and the Numbers. I'm going to start on page 298. It says, We have seen that 49 is the full measure in the world of counterbalancing opposites. The number 49 can either characterize measures used for good or those used for the bad. Here, there is the imperative for man to trade measure for measure. This involves reversing the 49 measures of bad into the 49 measures of good. This was the secret of Israel's transformation at the Exodus, which revolves around the number 49. We went from a state of impurity to a state of, okay, we're ready to receive the word of God now. Because from leaving Egypt and all the way to Mount Sinai, 49-day journey, the 50th day, they received the Torah. That's when God spoke from the mountain, all that wonderful stuff about the mountains, smoking, being on fire, tongues of fire coming down, all that Exodus 19 stuff. That was the 50th day from their leaving of Egypt and crossing through the Red Sea, which is actually called the Yom Suf. So what are we doing for with the good or the bad in our life and using how are we using it to counterbalance for the sake of transformation is basically what the 49 is. So are you using your labor for fruit? Are you using your labor for fruitlessness? Because the way to be laboring in vain, again, as Tehillim 127 verse 1 puts it, unless Hashem builds the house, the laborers build, the builders labor in vain. So are you laboring with an amen or are you laboring as amal? Because one has the staff and one doesn't. So if you take the amen, which is 91, and put it with the 49, you will get the gematria of amal, which means labor. But this time, instead of just being labor, you're going to be an amen with a staff. So anyway, I want to connect that to Daniel and I want to connect that to the followers of Mashiach who've come to faith. Because we're all related in that aspect of being an Amen with the Memtet. So it says a pauper is considered like a dead man. So when Esau realized that Eliphaz did not follow his orders, he went to Eliphaz's son, Amalek, and told him to murder Yaakov. He's like, Eliphaz, I don't want the Jewish understanding of killing. I want my understanding of killing, which means he's not breathing. He's like, but Abba, don't you know a, a person who's poor and a pauper is considered like a dead man? All right, here we go, Rabbi Trail again. So that means for those of us who give to poor people who are people of charity and loving kindness, we are taking a part in a kind of sort of resurrection when we're giving to poor people. Might as well just push it all the way over the edge, because if you cause a poor person to be reinstated back into society, i.e. you clothe them, you shelter them, you get them a job and you bring them back. It's literally like you've resurrected somebody. That's ridiculous to think about. I mean, wow, that'd be so incredible. Like 
bringing the dead back to life is literally helping a poor person, a pauper. Anyway, so it's like, all right, Asa was like my son, whatever with him. He's got a bunch of stuff now, but he still didn't kill Yaakov. I want Yaakov dead. I'm going to go to my grandson. And it's like, all right, so grandson, how you doing today? Many blessings upon your head. All right, so will you go kill your grand your granduncle? It's like, sure. So Amalek says, I agreed and swore to Asav that he would do so. So now he put himself under an oath. He's like, I, I swear I will do it. So it's like, so it has to happen. So Amalek now signed himself up for making sure that he makes good on his oath to Asav. Because there's no way out of it now. He can't break his oath. Contrary to popular uh, understanding, a non-Jew who makes an oath, he cannot get out of it. A Jew who makes an oath, he can get out of it. But you have to know the oral Torah for that information. But anyway. Says, so when Timna heard of this evil matter. So Timna, so he. Amalek was like, I'm not going to consult anybody. I'm going on this mission. I'm going to do it. Timna was like, I need to intercept. I'm glad I overheard this. So she comes to him. So this is what she says. Timna heard of this evil matter. Gotta love Timna, man. She cautioned Amalek as she cautioned Eliphaz, but Amalek ignored her words. Case in point on Amalek, i.e. Christianity, because we now know that they're all related in family and stuff. They ignore words of counsel and words of truth. I know painting with a very broad paintbrush, but I'm just saying if the paintbrush should be smaller, how come pastors aren't teaching Torah? How about we just say this right now? Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch may you cause more pastors right now to pick up the Torah and to put on a head covering and zitzit, eat kosher, become observant, and lead their congregations into doing so. Amen. All right. So there we go. That, that settles that. So uh, anyway, it says that Amalek ignored her words. So she said, a great debt lies unpaid, but will be collected from the descendants of Abraham. Namely, 400 years of service. See Genesis 15 verse 13, because remember, it started with the birth of Yitzhak. Yitzhak was over 30 years old at this point when his sons are born. So we're already over 30 years into the 430 year time period. So anyway, just to point that out, because 37 was when he was offered as an Akira few years later was when he um, got married to Rivka and then began having children about a decade later after that. So we're less than 400 years to go at this point. So, yeah, the servitude has to be paid, Timna says. So she says, if you kill Yaakov, you and your children will be responsible for that entire debt. Are you? For you are a descendant of Abraham. Okay, so she's like, 
All right, so you're going to have to pay for it because you're a descendant of Abraham. Therefore, Melech waited until after the servitude had ended and the debt had been paid. Only then did he attempt to fulfill his oath to his grandfather. So he's like, all right, I'll let him take the service. So I'm going to sit over here and wait. When the time's up, because it will be, I'm going to go ahead and take him out. Which I told the amazing Chazan when I came in the shul after reading this information on Shabbat Zakor, I was like, uh, how come Amalek has more faith than we do in the redemption? Amalek was like, we are, they're going to be redeemed. And when they are, I will kill them. But yet we're over here like, oh, will there be a redemption? I don't know. Hashem redeem us. And the tribe of Ephraim who left early, they got killed by the Philistines. So, okay, they get an A for effort because they literally knew that they were going to be redeemed. They just didn't know when. But everybody else, when Moshe showed up, there was like, ah, oh, get out of here. We're fine. Like, da, 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 da. And it's like, okay, you're not the Mashiach we were expecting. So, yeah, so now you translate that to now in this final redemption, Asaph is still on duty. He's like, yeah, no man knows the day or the hour. Who cares? When that hour comes, you won't be alive to see it. That's Asaph's goal right now. So I'm like, and we're up here like, oh, should we really be praying about this? Do we really know the time or the hour? I mean, we got so much stuff that we can really focus on doing, you know, like, what about the unmarried people? Like, don't they want to get married and stuff? And da, 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 da. It's like, did you know life goes on after the redemption? But we need the redemption. Aren't you tired of people just dying and getting sick and us having to deal with um, all the terrorism and all the the genocide and all the corruption of mankind and the unclarity and having to go to work and not being able to spend more time with Hashem? Are we, are, do we even care that, you know, that stuff is an issue right now? Why are we getting so old? Why are we tired? Goodness. I mean, studying the word of God with energy for once would be absolutely incredible. And, um, yeah. And having to not be tempted to sin anymore. Like the Yetzirah finally is like transformed and offered on the altar of Hashem as a Corbin. And we're like all like Kadosh Le Hashem and stuff like holy to God. Because eventually we're going to have to offer up our Yetzirah to Hashem. So it's like it, we're literally living in a perpetual cycle of Shabbat Hagadol, basically, because this is where in, uh, in Egypt we did this. We haven't done this ever again. This was the only time we did this. But we took a lamb, we tied it to our, our bedpost, and all the way up until the 14th of Nisan, we had this animal. So it was about three to four days at this point that we got attached to this animal, and then we had to offer it as a Pesach offering. So when we look at that, we have this whole picture here that don't get too attached to your Sahara because, you know, you're going to have to offer it to Hashem one day. So if you're really all about your lustful desires and your, your, I got to have it now. And this is just how I am. If you're really attached to that, then, you know, that's going to go away someday. So, you know, I want to work on, uh, using it for the sake of righteousness. So anyway, so all of this is going on and we, here we are in this final time where we have to remember to blot out the name of Asaph because Asaph doesn't care. 
So with Amalek at this point being ready to take us out, when this time happens that uh, Amalek comes out to attack us while we're in the wilderness, he sees the clouds of glory. He sees the rock rolling in the wilderness and he sees the manna coming down. He sees the ark that's leveling the mountains, the moving out snakes and scorpions with the streams of fire that shoot forth from the ark. He's like, whatever, let's go kill him. And he does. He goes after him. And Moshe, Aharon, and Hor have to be on the mountainside holding up the staff of Hashem to keep the war in a victorious manner while Yehoshua, literally Yeshua, because that's his uh, name, uh, is out there with chosen men who were designated for battle and they're putting to uh, to the edge of the sword all the Amalekites. So we see that in order to defeat Amalek, you have to have a Muna because that's what Moshe's hands were on the mountain. It didn't say he raised his hands. It said his hands were a Muna. And then you have to have Yehoshua with the sword of the spirit fighting literally the enemy, which is the Torah, which is our prayer and which is our acts of loving kindness. So we're putting in the work on both ends in the higher worlds and in the lower worlds through our faith and through our living it out. Okay, so if we're Torah observant, full of prayer, full of passion for Hashem, full of trust in him, full of obedience, this is how you wipe out a Melech. So I'm going to do a part two to kind of finish up with the Daniel uh, and the Thomas connection to this. And why is that so important? So this really comes to the forefront in the story of Esther. So Esther is with the other protagonist, Mordecai, and the pro the antagonist, Slika. So the protagonist... Uh, is Esther and Mordecai. The antagonist is Haman. Haman is a descendant of Amalek. So Amalek is still going. Why is this important? Because the exodus from Egypt happens, right? Amalek comes out, attacks us, and then we get the victory over that. Later on in the wilderness, Amalek comes out again, dressed up as Canaanites, and tries to attack us. But we get the victory again. Shouts out to Pincus and, you know, all that beautifulness with Caleb and Yehoshua. So, again, still going through that. So we get into the land, kind of sort of take it over. Then we have the time period of the judges. And then after the judges, we get uh, King Shaul who comes into play because everybody's like, all right, Samuel, you're the final judge, and we don't want any more of your uh, rulership over us. We want a king. We need a real king. Samuel's very, very disheartened because he's like, God, they rejected me. Which is interesting because at that point, God was king, and yet he had a person who was his manifest manifested kingship, basically. Which is why Hashem tells Samuel, they didn't reject you, they rejected me. So it's like when the children of Israel rejected Hashem, it looked like rejecting Hashem's anointed, which, by the way, Hashem's anointed is the word Mashiach in Hebrew. 
So Selah on Hashem's anointed is Hashem and it's like Mashiach and stuff. So when Mashiach is saying that I am one with the one who sent me. So if you reject me, you reject him. Or if you accept him, you accept me. You know, that's how that works. But anyway, so Shaul is supposed to go out to war against the Amalekites. This is the Haftarah of Parashat Tetzaveh. And he goes out. And he's like, oh, man, look at all their stuff. And, oh, we captured the king, King Agag. Wow, cool. Take him into captivity. Let's take the best of all their stuff, and we're going to offer it as sacrifices to Hashem. Knowing good and well, Hashem told him, take out everything. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Completely wipe out Amalek. You're in the land now, people. It's time to wipe them out. But yet, everyone's focused on wanting a king. No one's built the temple yet because you're only supposed to. It's uh, you're only supposed to get the king after you build the temple. By the way, because Parsha Shoftim, which is another Torah portion in Deut Deuteronomy, talks about when you anoint a king. You know, so we were going to have a king, but it was going to happen in a procession of things, and so we were just like, whatever, we'll skip all that. We'll go straight to wanting a king. And it's like you haven't even completely taken over the land yet. So anyway. Uh, digressing a lot on that. So King Shaul did not wipe out Amalek. Ag Agag was able to uh, procreate uh, before his captivity or during his captivity or whatever. And he was able to have a son who down the line da -da 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 -da, has Haman. So now, because we didn't wipe out Amalek, we now have another threat. And this is ongoing because Amalek still exists today. Again, Christianity, because we did not do what we're supposed to do. One of the things that came down in Parsha Kitisa from Mr. Uh, G. Shekel. I'm going to the source right now because... He talked about why, um, where Rome came from, which Rome, again, is the uh, progenitor of Christianity. So, stand by here, pulling up my docs, Bo Kitisa, okay, here we go, Kitisa. Give me the drop on Rome. There we go. Great city of Rome. Talmud Shabbat 56b. Rav Yehuda said in Shamuel's name, when Shlomo married Pharaoh's daughter, Gabriel descended and planted a reed in the sea. And it gathered a bank around it, on which the great city of Rome was built. In a Bereta it was taught, on the day that Yeroboam brought the two golden calves, one into Bethel and the other into Dan, a hut was built, and this developed into Greek Italy. So now we got Italy and Rome. Basically, the final uh, exiles, the third and fourth exiles, 
which means, hallelujah, we're so close to the end, Burgashem. But anyway, we created the very exile that we're in today. And again, we're also in exile because we destroyed the temple. The only reason the temple was destroyed is because we destroyed it. God's glory left the temple because it would have never got destroyed if God's glory was in it. So think about that. What causes God's glory to show up and what causes God's glory to go away? Well, namely our own actions of backbiting one another, basis hatred, idolatry, murder, bloodshed, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. Adultery, all that kind of stuff that that takes Hashem away. So. When you really look at all this information, it's just kind of like, all right, so when Haman comes on to play, it's because Shaul did not do what he was supposed to do. I mean, the king of Israel did not wipe out our enemies. But with Mashiach Yeshua, though, all our enemies getting wiped out on a constant basis until he shows up. So every day, more and more is going to be the less of the memory of a Melech. For those of us who continue to press and strain and towards the high mark, that's what we're doing. We're getting rid of a Melech. So with every Torah portion, with every Yom Tov, with every year, with every like opportunity that we are granted, with every step we take, the more we draw closer to Hashem, the more we cry out for redemption is the more we defeat and wipe out a Melech, which will bring the final redemption. Because it says the only reason that Hashem's name is not one, i.e. complete, then uh, it's because the name of a Melech still exists. But when a Melech is wiped out, Hashem's name will be complete. So that's another drop from Parsha Beshalach in Exodus. So anyway, studying these Torah portions, you get all this information. So Bezrat Hashem, with the help of Hashem, everyone is following along with, you know, being able to track down this information in the Torah portions and stuff. So anyway, so now in the story, Esther and Mordecai are communicating and this communication system you know, it's not like sending a text message or an email or let me call you real quick or, hey, let's meet up over here. They had to have a messenger to go between them. And that messenger between them brought about the redemption for Israel, which led to the destruction of Haman and his sons and Israel being granted salvation from their enemies, namely the people of Persia. Haman sent out an evil decree saying that all the Jews need to be killed, killed on the 14th and 15th of Nisan and all their provinces. And it was like that cannot be overturned. However, because of this valiant messenger between Mordecai and Esther, whose name is Hatak, i.e. known as Daniel, uh, he was able to get the communication so amazingly that Esther was able to operate and do what she needed to do at the word of Mordecai, which only re reached her through Daniel. So she did the whole thing where she invited Pharaoh and Haman to a meal. 
they had the meal, you know, and she's like, come back tomorrow and I'll tell you. And that was a whole famous incident where, you know, she was like, Haman wants to kill all the Jews and the Jews are my people. Yes, I'm Jewish. I know. I know I'm cute, but that's neither here nor there right now because we're all going to die if you don't do anything. And the king is like, what? You know, he leaves the room, had to think about it for a second, comes back in. Haman is all over Esther because he got pushed into her and all this kind of stuff. And the king is like, oh, and now you consult with my wife in front of me? And what? You want to kill my wife's people? Now you want to take my Okay, you're done. Okay, out of here. You know, kind of thing. All this stuff, right? Salvation of Israel, Brugashem. But why is this so important to talk about Daniel? Because... Daniel got put into the spot because what led to this Purim story, the story of Esther, is that this was post-Babylon. The 70 years of exile were over, but nobody wanted to move back into the land. Nobody wanted to go build a temple. Nobody wanted to leave exile. We were stuck in a Amalek mindset. It was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Destruction time is over. Everything's been paid for and atoned. We're fine. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. We don't need to learn Hebrew. We'll learn all these foreign languages and then we'll be stuck there, which is where the whole understanding of uh, Aramaic came from because people stopped uh, speaking in the Holy Tongue while they were among the Babylonian exile. And it had to get rediscovered and all sorts of stuff. And so Aramaic became like a second language to Hebrew, basically. So anyway, that's a whole other stuff. But uh, if you've you if you've used the Anchor podcast, you can uh, search for uh, a podcast called Super Time, and you can look at them because they this is uh, Superman and Superwoman, Ishmaele and Isha Maaleha. Uh, they both go in on Aramaic and where it came from. But anyway, so before this exile really was like ended, kind of like early into it when Nebuchadnezzar was like taking over and stuff. There was a time where Nebuchadnezzar built this statue and he wanted everybody to bow down to it and worship it. And as people bowed down and worship it, the statue reacted and had like all this like, oh, thank you. You guys are so wonderful. This is great. It's like, blah, blah, blah. I'm a moving statue. All right. Woohoo. Well, the reason the statue did that is because they took the golden head plate of the Kohen Gadol from the destruction of the temple because now the temple's destroyed. They had all this stuff. So they got a hold of this golden head plate, which is called the Zeets. By the way, Zeitz, it's the golden forehead plate of the priest. They stuck that in the mouth of the of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar built. And so it was animated because that that head plate has Kadosh Le Hashem on it. It has the divine name on it. And it has the word Kadosh Le Hashem, like the divine name, Kosh or holy unto the name of Hashem is what that forehead plate says. So literally, this this statue that was lifeless was animated by the name of God. Nebuchadnezzar attempted to persuade Daniel in various ways. He also did this to other individuals that same time frame. 
Remember uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Commonly known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So with that being said, they didn't bow. They got thrown into a furnace. Simultaneously, Nebuchadnezzar was like, come on, Daniel. You don't want to go in the furnace, right? Come on, bow to it. So, Shir Hashirim Rabbah 7, section 9 says this. He said to him, you're refusing to bow down to an idol that is real. <laughs> Come and see what it can do. You will be convinced on your own to bow down to it. What did that Rasha do? I.e., what did Nebuchadnezzar do? He took the zitz, the forehead of the Kohen Gadol, which bore the sacred name, and placed it on the mouth of the idol. He brought all sorts of musicians who offered praise, and the idol would say, I am Hashem, your God, because the sacred name was in its mouth. So we're talking golden calf here. And it says, upon witnessing this, Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, will you not allow me to go up and kiss your idol on its mouth? Nebuchadnezzar asked him, why on its mouth? Daniel responded to him, because it speaks so nicely. Immediately, he gave him permission to kiss it. Daniel climbed up a ladder to the mouth of the idol and made the zeets in its mouth vow. <laughs> he said to it. So Daniel's like, all right, zeets, I need you to listen up to me. I need you to take on a vow right now. Interesting. He's talking to the, the golden head plate. He's not talking to the idol. He says, he said to it, I am a flesh and blood and I am a messenger of Hakadosh Baruchu. Please heed that the name of heaven not be desecrated through you. I decree that you follow me. He went to kiss it and remove the item trapped in its mouth. When he descended, think about Mashiach David you know, Mashiach ben David descending, you know, the the final redemption, you know, he's coming down. All idolatry gets banished and cast out of the earth like the whole Mashiach return stuff, because that's what that means. See a picture of this right here. So he descends. It says a variety of musicians entered once again. They offered praise to the idol, but it did not react. At that very moment, a wind blew the idol down. Also bringing in Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer and some tractate of, what is it, Sanhedrin? Uh, I'll have to go back in my documents on this, but it is codified that as this wind blew, this is the same wind that blew through the Valley of Dry Bones when Hashem was talking to Ezekiel, favorite prophet, by the way, my favorite prophet, I should say, even though we shouldn't have favorites, he is. Um, <laughs> the wind comes through, raises up those dry bones. Those dry bones are brought forth to Nebuchadnezzar because those dry bones are the fallen tribe of Ephraim that got killed by the Philistines when they left Egypt too early. 
So they come, they come in, they all attack Nebuchadnezzar. They smack him in the face, basically. Then Hashem rescues Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the fiery furnace. The statue is knocked over. I mean, you talk about Hashem showing up with all this stuff. So Daniel comes down and all of this happens, right? So just think about that with the final redemption. Because when Mashiach comes back, there's shofar blasts, there's resurrection of the dead, mass transportation going to Israel, the temple coming down out of Shemaim, the gates that were sunk into the ground, raising up, the great earthquake is going to go on, like all, so I'm talking stuff, y'all. So anyway, all this happens. And it says, when the nations of the world witnessed the miracles and feats HaKadosh Baruch Hu performed on behalf of Hananiah and his colleagues, they took their idols and shattered them. They made bells from them to hang on their dogs and donkeys. Then they would say fetishiously, look at what we used to bow down to, to fulfill that which is said. Yeshiyahu 46.1, Baal is kneeling, Nebo is doubled over. Their idols were loaded on the beast and the animal. My Kala decided to say, oh, this is where cowbells came from. I was like, wow. <laughs> anyway, so why is this important? Because this is specifically the reason why Esther and Mordecai chose Daniel to be the messenger between them in the face of imminent threat with Mordecai and King Ahasuerus and the rest of Persia. Daniel did not care. He was like, I will take down a statue. I will go against the king of somebody who's not even supposed to be in charge of us. Like foreign king, idolaters, uncircumcised, you know, all this kind of stuff. Why? What, what is this? Like, we don't have time for this. Either we're about redemption or we're not. So when you look at this whole thing about blotting out the memory of Amalekh, are we going to be Amain? Or are we going to be Amal? You know, are we going to be the, the faith-filled labor? Or are we going to be the fruitless labor? Well, you have Daniel and you have people of Lapid who follow after Mashiach. And we are called to rise beyond the level of what we can see. Because Amalek saw, Haman saw, and made what he saw into nothing. But yet we see nothing, but we know there is something because we have to understand that we walk by faith and not by sight, which is why the contrast comes in when we look at Yochanan chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, John 20, verses 24 through 29 about Thomas. Mashiach was resurrected. He began making appearances and making his rounds, but Thomas hadn't seen him yet. It literally says eight days later, the Talmudim were again inside and Thomas was with them because he was not with them the previous time that Mashiach showed up to him. So this is like a Hanukkah miracle for him, kind of. So I'm going to pick up here on the eight days later, it says Yeshua comes despite the locked doors. Because, I mean, he's now in this transcendent physicality, like this uh, 
eighth dimension kind of thing, if you will, hyperspace. Like, you can lock the door, but I'm still coming in. So, like, why even do that? But anyway, so Yeshua comes in through the locked doors. He stood in their midst and said, Shalom Aleichem. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Why did he say that? Because Thomas already said before when he was with the Talmudim, I won't believe it. I'm going to go back up here. He says, unless I see the nail prints in his hands and put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will never believe. Thomas was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all said y'all seen him. I haven't seen him and I won't have belief. I won't have an amen because I haven't seen it. Amalek is like, I haven't seen it. I don't care if I see it and I don't care if I ever see it. I want it gone. Thomas is like, well, I ain't seen it, so I can't believe it. So Yeshua, back to that verse, says, okay, put your hand, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting. Stop being a melech and believe. Thomas answered and said, Adonai Elohai, my Lord and my God. So he confessed. He made Shuva. Okay, boom. All right, Brugashem. So Thomas is now left team Amalek and joined team Amain. But here's the kicker. Yeshua said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are the ones who have not seen and yet believed. And that's the whole point of Shabbat Zakor, everybody, is that we have to be the ones who have not seen and yet believe. We have to know that Mashiach is going to come. He will return. The resurrection of the dead will happen. If we don't believe that, we might as well stop praying the Amidah. Because the, the standing prayer we pray, the second blessing of that, which is corresponding to Isaac, because he was the first one Hashem did the Mekieh Hamatim to, the, the res, raising up the dead, because Isaac did die, but he was resurrected, and he had marks in his hands and feet to show proof. Anyway, Abraham believed this even before it happened, which is why Genesis 22, he says, my son and I will go and we will pray and we will return to you. It's like, oh, so he knows that whatever happens on that mountain, my son and I are coming back. So, yeah, so he didn't see and he believed. Uh, and then when the ram was caught in the thicket, it says that's when Abraham saw Mashiach's day. And rejoiced because, you know, Messiah says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Well, that happened at the Akedah when the ram got caught in the thorns. He's like, oh, Messiah. All right, Bukashim. Hallelujah. The son will be raised. My son will be raised. So anyway, so we have to be able to believe even without seeing, because one of the things I thought about, because I was reading in the weekly parasha, there's a wonderful, uh, it's, it looks like a coloring book. <laughs> really, and it's so amazing because children's books in the Jewish world are like the most violent things you could ever read in your entire life. But I digress. It's from Art Scroll, and it was talking about the two young men that Abraham took with him. 
So there were four people and one donkey traveling to this mountain. It was Abraham, Yitzhak, Eliezer, and Ishmael. And then they had the donkey, which was the same donkey Mashiach rode into Yerushalayim on. But anyway, that's from the Midrash. So in this book, it says, Abraham asked all three of these individuals. He asked Yitzhak. He said, do you see what I see? It's like, yeah. So the song, do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? It's not about the birth of Mashiach. It's about, well, I guess it is about the birth of Mashiach because it was about the mountain called Mount Moriah, which is where the Akedah happened, which is where the temple was built. That was floating in the air. That had pillars of fire on it. And it was like, Surrounded by clouds of glory. So, yeah, like Mount Sinai stuff. It's like, so do you see that? Yitzhak said, yes, I do. Abraham's like, all right, cool. So me and my son, we got that. Okay, we look alike and we're, we think alike and all that kind of stuff. So just, I just want to see if there's just anybody else. Is there anybody else? Can I get a witness? Eliezer, do you see what I see? No, I don't see anything, boss. Like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Yishmael, do you see what I see? Nah. It's like, okay, well, it's clear. My, my son and I must go. So they went to the mountain. So I just thought that was amazing because when you think about who can see and who can't versus why you need to see regardless and why you don't need to see regardless. I mean, just thinking of the gamut of all this. Because, again, I think back to Amalek when he came out to attack us, because that's remembering what he did. He came for our, the weak ones among us, the ones who were not secure and solid in their faith, who weren't completely solidified in their identities. He was like, whatever, taking y'all out. Y'all don't even believe anyway. Y'all so doubt, doubtful. Y'all don't even know if Hashem's with you or not. There's, you say there's clouds of glory surrounding you. There's a rock traveling with you. There's rivers of living water in between your camps. There's an ark going out before you leveling mountains. There's, you know, all this stuff going on, manna. But yet you're doubting if Hashem is with you. So I'm with you on that. I don't think there's anything of Hashem to show you. Like, so though there were clouds... It was as if there weren't because the people didn't really pay attention to that. They stopped focusing on Hashem, which caused them to stop seeing. So Abraham and Yitzhak see the mountain and they're like, yeah, cool. That's where we're going. Abraham sees that whatever is going to happen on this mountain is going to result in myself and my son coming back alive. So if I'm going to offer up my son, Hashem's going to have to raise him from the dead, which is totally fine. And then again, Captain Israel in his Shabbat Zakor Drash, he gave the the source about Abraham and Yitzhak both were uh, looking forward to the beginning of the Messianic era because this offering was going to be what caused the resurrection of the dead for all mankind and life everlasting. And we were going to finally be in the, the final era of redemption. But it wasn't time. So anyway, so just looking at all that, Amalek probably didn't see any clouds of glory. He probably didn't see Hashem surrounding his people. But even if he did or even if he didn't, 
it was as if it did not exist and he did not care if it was going to be his own demise. He was like, I will take them out. That's my only job. I got one job and that's what I'm going to do. Same thing is still true today. He has one job and that's what he wants to do. So are we going to be a Thomas or are we going to be a Daniel? Are we going to be a, a Maine or are we going to be an Amal? Okay, so like we get to choose. And I pray that we all choose to wipe out the memory of Amalek. I pray that we all choose to anticipate the final redemption. And I pray that we all choose to enter into newness of life and allow Hashem's power to flow through us as we walk by faith and not by sight. Because regardless of what we can see, we need to know one thing is sure. The name of Hashem is ready to help us and assist us should we call upon him with a sincere heart. And when we do that and when we walk in obedience to him, we are in, enveloped in his presence. In the uh, one of the prayers we say, and I'll end with this uh, after the Corbin note. We uh, offer up the shiny labor and then we do the um, ba -da -ba -da -ba. we do the removal of the ashes. Then we do the Tamid offering, the, the daily lambs, and then we do the incense. And then after we do the incense, we have this beautiful thing we get to say. Right about here. It says, you are a shelter for me from distress. You preserve me with glad song of rescue. You envelop me, Selah. That is from Psalms 32, 7. So guess what? If we go to Psalms 32, 7. May this be heavy artillery for removing Amalek. Ata seterli mitar titreni rane falet tesoveni selah. That's the Hebrew of that verse. Continually deliver me from troubles. Lead me to sing songs of deliverance to you. Protect me from the oppressor whom the Zohar identifies as the evil inclination, which hates the person and causes that others should hate him as well. Zohar, Volume 1, 178b. The quality of truth, it says. Oh, by the way, Metzudo was the one that says, continually deliver me from my troubles. Again, master of salvations and master of consolations. So the word seter, which, by the way, is part of the word Esther. If you just added an Aleph to the beginning, you'd get the word for Esther, which would mean I hide. The word Seter, translated here as refuge, is an acronym for the words Rosh, Tokh, and Sof, beginning, middle, and end. Okay, stop. When you add the Aleph, because Hashem says, I shall hide my face surely in that day, because that's in Devarim, in the later chapters in the 30s. 
which is the Torah source for Esther being in the Bible. I could source that out, but I don't have time right now. But just know that, believe that, trust that. When you add the Aleph to Seter, it literally becomes Esther, which means I hide. But according to this acronym, you can literally say I, which is Aleph. Like the Aleph, when you add an Aleph to the beginning of a word in Hebrew, you saying it's something that you do. So I, Seter, like I hide or I refuge. But here it says I, beginning, middle, and end. Hashem is the beginning, the middle, and the end. Which, by the way, is Aleph, Mem, Tav. The first letter, middle letter, and last letter of the Hebrew Aleph Bet, which is the word for truth. So going on with the commentary, it says this alludes to God's attribute of truth, a quality that is consistent and uncompromising in its every manifestation from beginning to end. The forces of spiritual impurity can thrive only the forces of spiritual impurity can thrive only where God's truth is obscured i.e. if it has been concealed, covered over, which is what has happened again in the non-Jewish faith system, covering over the Torah, but yet trying to teach the Torah, kind of. This is like, yeah, 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 Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that's, that's word of God, but we don't have to do it. Let's cover it up. Who teaches like that? Mm, I wonder. Who shall cease to teach like that? Hmm, I wonder. Hashem, help us all. May we not teach like that. It says, when faced with the reality of godliness, the fallacy and powerlessness of forces opposed to him are laid bare. Thus, the psalmist says, when you are a satyr, when you are a refuge, when your truth is present and evident, we are protected from distress. The spirit of impurity that provokes us to sin is powerless. Rabbi Dove Bear of Lubavitch. Sha'arei Teshuva 99D. So there's some sources for that. That's how you wipe out a melech. That's how you become free from sin. That's why we have a yoke of freedom that we're connected to in Mashiach because Truth is no longer obscured. Clarity is everywhere. Baruch Hashem. May we all be victorious until the return of Mashiach Yeshua. May we see him speedily and soon in our days. Baruch Abab Hashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Hashem. And Baruch Atah Adonai Ga'al Yisrael. Blessed are you Adonai, the Redeemer of Yisrael. May it be soon in our days. Bim Heda. Bim. Ve amenu, bim herabe amenu, amen.